My name is Steve Klug. My wife is Teresa. I have three children. I, uh, my uh, oldest is Helen. She is nine. I have a middle son, Kai, who is seven. And my youngest is Logan, and he is four. So we are busy, as you know, as you parents know. Um, I would say that God has always been in my life. But I just chose the desert for the last 15 years of my life before coming home. You see, I was called to do God's work. But because of my own arrogance and sin, God took it all away. I was made, I was mad at God. His church had hurt me in the process. I was running to the desert. I didn't just go to the desert, I ran. I was a sheep that would constantly get out. Christ would come get me, and I would find the fastest way to get back out. Sometimes I'd hear him call, and I would go hide. I say this because there are many sitting out there today listening that feel the same way now. I thought I could, I thought I didn't need the church, that I could have a relationship with God without fellowship with his church. I even spent one year just meeting with a pastor for breakfast, never entering a church building. God's still small voice was calling me and calling my name. You see, God never forgot me and he never stopped calling for me. I decided to go to a church where I had friends, but the church would never challenge me. They allowed me to sit in my seat, and I sat in the back. I never had to preach the gospel or speak the gospel. That was not expected. But God had a plan for me and my wife, Teresa. We began to homeschool our kids and started coming to this church for school. I heard God's voice say, You're going to end up there. I was like, no way. Then my kids came to some of the children's programs and could tell me where to find the books of the Bible. I said, well, I guess our kids kind of need to go to that church more. But I, I also was still not ready. Then the pandemic hit and our old church wasn't doing very much or little at all. So I came. I had my full defenses on, Rob could tell you. Rob told me when he looked at me, he thought I wanted nothing to do with the, with the gospel. And that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> but then I started joining. Uh, uh, oh, I do want to mention this. Last week, Rob mentioned questions in his little questions for the week about Curse to blessings. See how I, see somehow I had made church a curse in my life. But God was on the move. I joined Rob's community group and God broke me. And it wasn't a bad break. It was a restorative way. You see, the desert can kill you. There was no life in me, but God began to feed me at this church and I began to re- and he began to restore life to me. My brother Joe 
who knows me better than anyone, started to see life come back into me. I had been in the desert so long, you could barely recognize me. You see, you need the church. That is why God provided us this place. Anyone listening or sitting that is struggling, I want you to know that you can find grace and restoration within the church. I want to say there is a place for you in this church. In my desert, I was so wrapped up in myself and my own wants and my own dreams that I overlooked that this was not about, this was about Christ and not some random broken people in a building or my own dreams and my own desires. I want to tell you there is no, there's no peace in the desert. It is full of wandering and self-loathing. For those of you thinking about the desert or already in the desert, I pray this over you. Ephesians 3, 20, 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Amen. What a great story. It is uh, Steve's story, but it's all of our story about how God pursues us and is faithful even in our unfaithfulness. We come this morning to the second book of the Old Testament. So much has happened in the first book. We talked about that last week. You can go online and listen to uh, that that uh, service on um, Abraham and the covenant of Abraham. But God has set aside one family to bring about his promise that he said he would do, which is to crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And he creates a nation from one man, Abram, who becomes Abraham whose faith was credited to him as righteousness as he looked to the promise of God that he and this seed from his line would be a blessing to the nations. God continues to affirm this covenant promise through Abraham, through his son Isaac, and through his son Jacob who is renamed Israel. Israel, or Jacob, has 12 sons, one being Joseph. And if you're in your Bible reading plan, you finish the book of Genesis this today, and Joseph is sold into slavery, into Egypt, by his own brothers. And yet God has a plan for Joseph. He has a plan for the whole family. He has a plan for Steve Klug. He has a plan for you this morning. Amen? Let's wake up, church, even if you're online with us. Let's put on our face. Let's get ready because God has a plan for you this morning. And we're going to see his plan unfolding through the one story that is about Christ and his word. Amen? Let's hear it. So here he goes. 
So Joseph and his whole family, and through a series of God-ordained circumstances, now Joseph becomes the ruler of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. A great famine happens, and Jacob and all of his family, now 70 people in all, go to Egypt under the protection of Joseph and Pharaoh to eat and graze in the land of Egypt. God had already told Abram that this would happen. When he reaffirmed the covenant in Genesis 15, 13, he says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now this was talked about to Abraham, and many years later, the exodus happens. The exodus, the, book, the word exodus means going out, as God's people are coming out of Egypt. If you break down the book and understand what the book is talking about, the first 13 chapters are God's people in Egypt. 14 through 19 are traveling to the mountain of God, which is Mount Sinai, the place where God met with Moses in the burning bush and the place where God will meet his people again. And the last 20 chapters of the book is God's people encamped at Mount Sinai as they will be encamped there all the way through Leviticus and until Numbers chapter 11. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, it begins with this thought here, Exodus chapter 1 verse 6. It says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful... (coughs) And it increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now that's Genesis 1 language. We go back to the beginning in which God calls Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. They are multiplying, they are being fruitful, and they are filling the earth or the land here in Exodus chapter 1. God is fulfilling what he, he has ordained according to his creation through this nation. Now, verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Uh-oh, that's trouble. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So what happens? The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, devises a plan to not only enslave God's people, but then to create a population control narrative upon the Israelites and throw all the male children into the Nile River. You see, the conflict is continuing between the serpent, right, in in the Garden of Eden, the serpent and the seed of the serpent, and God's people, the seed of the woman 
in Genesis. It's interesting to note that even archaeology, okay, let me get that out for you, archaeology and history shows us this. Even the Pharaoh himself wears a crown with an erect cobra, all right? The seed of the serpent seen in Egypt as the Pharaoh. It's called a uraeus, the imagery of the serpent. Now, <laughs> what happens here in Exodus chapter 1, verse 13, let me continue on the narrative. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now what happened in Genesis chapter 1? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And what you see is next is, and subdue it, rule and reign. And yet God's people are being ruled and reigned over. This is not God's plan. It is not his creation. And yet Pharaoh is ruling and reigning over his people by using mortar and brick. Where do we see that? Back in Genesis in the Tower of Babel where they build with mortar and brick this uh, tower up to make them a name for themselves. So they are in line with those who are in the Tower of Babel. They are in line with the seed of the serpent. Appreciate that. And now God will judge them. And this is what he does. He raises a man out of the river. His name is Moses. And God will take his people from Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh to be his treasured possession so that his presence will dwell among them. This is a people that he sets apart. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 19 where we, we find the, um, uh, what I believe is the central text which hinges the two parts of the book of Exodus together. The deliverance of God and the the giving of the law here in Exodus chapter 19. We'll start in verse 1. So if you'll stand in reading of God's word, we'll read it together. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, <coughs> they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the, I'm sorry, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, <clears throat> You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before him all these words that the Lord 
had commanded him. All the people answered and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you for this morning. We know that there are many that are hurting this morning, many that are sick, many that are dealing with issues (coughs) within our culture, within our community, within our nation. And Father, we come to you, the great God, who knows us, who sees us, who delivers us, and gives and presents us as a holy people for your purposes. May we be reminded this morning of your great purposes that you have for your church, and may we not shirk, may we not look to the left or to the right, But may we look to you, Father God, during this time, in this place, in this morning. May we see your purposes and your plan that is unfolding in the narrative of Scripture for you and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That's right. Have Have you ever wondered why God saved you? Have you ever wondered that question? I ask that question to you quite often. It's a great question to ask yourself. Is it because you are a good church member that God saved you? Is is it because you are really wise and your decision-making process is And God needed you to show people wisdom? Is it your ability to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel that God saved you? Is it your good looks? Is that the reason why he saved you? No, no. He saved you so that you could reflect himself. You could reflect his glory. As Peter puts it, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God saved Israel and brought them to himself to declare his name, not only to his people who dwell, to dwell among his people, but so those people could declare his name his and his great salvation among the nations to the ends of the earth. 
Again, if you look back into the Garden of Eden, when man walked with God and God dwelt with man, man was created in the image of God to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with the glory of God as he was created in this image. And again, time and time, as man was separated from God and walking in the cool of the day in the garden, and now he has been banned from his presence, God returns and his presence dwells again among his people here in Exodus. God is pursuing his people. Just as he pursued Steve, he pursues his people. Not because they are faithful. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6. <clears throat> Let me read this for you. It says this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him. By destroying them, he will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. <clears throat> this is what is happening in Exodus. God is delivering his people to bring them to himself. And now... He is giving them the law to obey him, to reflect his glory. Will they fulfill their end of the covenant? Will they? How will God's people be his treasured possession if they fail to obey? You have to read the whole rest of the book to find out. No, we're going to talk about it. Let's find out today, okay? So, verse 1, <clears throat> on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, <clears throat> they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to the God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is our first point this morning. It's thus. God saves his people. Very simple. God saves his people. 
It's in the very nature and character of God to bring about salvation. He uses the imagery of this eagle, okay? When you think of an eagle, do you think of this, this kind, gentle animal that is, that is bringing people to his salvation? No, you think of a bird of prey that's going to rip everything out, right? And it's, he uses it as a bird of rescue. Why does he do this? Well, I think this is really the theme of the entire Bible. God is unveiling God's glory in his salvation through judgment. Let me repeat that for you. God is unveiling his glory in salvation through judgment. Have you ever wondered why God allowed his people to be in Egypt? To show his mighty hand of deliverance for his people? How about even going back further? Have you ever wondered why God allowed Adam to be created, knowing that he would sin and death would enter into the world? Even in the first judgment of Adam and Eve, God is pronouncing his hand of salvation that will come through the promised one, the seed of the, of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. You see, God's hand of deliverance through judgment in the story of Noah when God saves eight, Noah and his family amidst his judgment. His deliverance in the Exodus is God showing his glory through his salvation through judgment. God's deliverance in Exodus begins with a man named Moses. And it began and it happens through judgment of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Let's go back to Moses' birth. Exodus 2 tells us how Moses was born. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. Remember, Pharaoh had told all the uh, Israelite males will be thrown in the Nile River. And when she saw that he was a fine child, which in Hebrew it's good, he saw that it was Good. He saw that the child was good. Where does that refer back to? In Genesis, when God's creation was good. She hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket. Now, the English translation is not doing us any favors here. That Hebrew is ark. He's referring us back to Noah. So she, she puts the little baby in an ark. All right? He's referring us back to the new Noah who will deliver his people from the judgment and wrath of God, which we will see in the Passover. Made of bulrushes, dabbed it with benjamin and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the river bank. We know that uh, a woman in, in Pharaoh's household takes the child as his own, raises it, Moses ends up going into the wilderness after he messes up 
Uh, Moses is actually a murderer. He messes up and he goes into the wilderness. He sees the Lord. He, he meets with the Lord. He visits the Lord in the burning bush and God will send this Moses back to save his people from Egypt. This is a conversation that Moses and the Lord have in, in Mount Sinai the first time. Exodus chapter 6. God spoke to Moses. He said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But, my, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them a land of Canaan, the land in which they live as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses uh, spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They did not listen to Moses, yet what happens next? God continues to pursue his people. Why? Because he loves them. He often calls his people stiff-necked, and yet he loves them. He sends the ten plagues to show his might and power. The last plague is the Passover, and a God, and again, God is saving his people through judgment. Judgment has rightly come upon Egypt because of their wickedness, Pharaoh's murder of the Israelites' sons. Yet God provides a way of salvation for his people. If you don't know what the Passover is, they took this lamb and they took the blood from the lamb that they were to eat and they put it on the doorpost of their house. And when the judgment of the Lord came into Egypt, those that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house, the judgment of God passed over them. They were not judged, but were saved from the wrath of God. What does that remind you of? Right? I mean, if you don't, don't see Jesus here in the Passover, and the salvation, and the salvific, the blood on the doorposts of our life in the judgment of God, the wrath of God poured out against humanity. And because of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, you can be saved. Amen? Yeah. 
God leads his people out. After this, after the Passover, he leads his people out of Egypt through a pillar of fire and a cloud, signifying his presence, now leading his people. I I thought it was interesting in this study, and I have to tell you this, but in the covenant with Abraham, when they, they, they split the animals, God walks in between the two to make this covenant. And what does he walk in? And what is the representation of God passing through these two pieces of the sacrificed animal to make this covenant with Abraham? It is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And what is, what is he leading his people out? A pillar of fire and a cloud. Uh, the presence of God now walking with his people. Christ is seen throughout the whole book, not just the Passover lamb pictured. He is the manna from heaven, the living water that comes from the rock that was struck. He's God's provision for his people. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As Moses meets with the Lord in the burning bush, God shares his name. I am who I am, Yahweh. And Jesus declares to his people, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Jesus is declaring himself to be God. And then at the end of of this this section here in in chapter 19, God brings the law and they will set up what we will call the tabernacle where God would dwell among his people. And John describes this tabernacle as Jesus coming down from heaven and tabernacling or dwelling among men. Jesus is also the better Moses, as Moses is an intercessor, a mediator, and just as Moses was on behalf of the people with God, Jesus will be the ultimate mediator and intercessor on behalf of us. So let's continue with our our story here. Now the people come to Sinai to meet with the Lord. And I believe this is really the central text. Why? Because it connects the deliverance of Israel, God saving his people, to now the response to the salvation, which will be obedience. The response to salvation, obedience. Verse 5, look at it with me here. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, which we will see here in the next few verses, the Ten Commandments, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for, for all the earth is mine. What does it begin with in that section, verse 5? What's the first word now? Therefore. Therefore, why? Why would we obey your covenant? Because you are the God who saves. Because I have brought you to myself. Because I am the creator God. Because I am worthy of your worship. You see, God's great salvation should drive a desire for his people to obey. Not only here in Israel, but here today. God's great salvation should drive a desire to obey his word. Even the Ten Commandments begins with verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, here's, here's my loss. Here's what I've called you to do. In the same way, the gospel drives a desire to obey Christ and his commandments. God's great salvation through Christ is what we Christians focus our lives around and that should lead us to obedience. If we focus our lives on the commandments without reminding or remembering on a daily basis how great our God is, then we have lost our first love and we are obeying out of obligation, which leads us to go our own way. The gospel must be in our forefront of our minds and our hearts and we must remember God's salvation. That's why they set up the Passover feast as a reminder for generations to come of God's great salvation as the reason we obey. This is our second point. God calls for obedience of his people to reflect his image. God calls for obedience for his people to reflect the holiness, the character, the nature, the image of God. Notice it is never obey me, then I will save you. That is false. It is never obey me, then the great God will save you. No, it is because of my great salvation you must respond. In the same way Christ calls for obedience out of grace that God has given to us because of his great provision of salvation. What do the people say? We will obey. We will do this. The Lord has spoken to us. We will obey. God calls people to keep the covenant, his people here to keep the covenant, which will be given the next chapters beginning with the Ten Commandments. Uh, These commandments, what are are they like? What, What is this like? I don't understand these Ten Commandments. I don't know why he's given this law. I'm not sure about all these things, Rob. It's like a plateau, okay? 
rising up out of the sea in which his children are playing. They're playing this raucous game and they're running around freely, enjoying this whole plateau out of the sea in which they can live and move. Why? Because there are walls. And some will say, well, isn't this limiting us? Isn't this, these laws and regulations, what God has, has orchestrated here, this is limiting us. Do, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. I mean, this is kind of limiting, isn't it? Well, if the walls are removed, the opposite effect happens. The, the children are huddled in the middle of the plateau not playing. Why? Because they're scared they may blow over the edge. And the commandments are given so that God's people can enjoy his presence dwelling among them. And they don't have to be fearful of the judgment and the wrath of God coming down upon them. God's people reflect his glory as he dwells among them. It's for their own safety that actually he gives them this law. As we'll see later in the, in the old, throughout the Old Testament that a lack of obedience will result in judgment. It's a very different world than in the Garden of Eden. Because the result of sin and death and anything unclean will be destroyed by God's presence. And after this, they lived happily ever after, right? No. What ends up happening is really sad through the pages of Scripture. Just a few chapters later, after all God has done for them, they break the covenant building a golden calf for themselves, an idol to worship. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not create idols. They break the first two commandments. They break all of them throughout their history. And again, if you looked at our life and you said, man, these, these commandments... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm accomplishing these commandments, but if you dig into where Jesus dug and he looks at the heart behind these commandments, we would all say, man, we fall short. Cannot keep the obligations of the covenant no matter how, how hard we try. Even Moses ends up not entering the promised land. Where do we go from here? Well, you guessed it. The answer is God will fulfill the covenant. He will fulfill the covenant through Christ who fulfilled the law. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, again referencing back to Genesis, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen?
He sent forth Jesus to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be sons of God. But God didn't send the covenant or didn't send Jesus to fulfill the covenant because we were good, but for his glory among the nations. Jesus, as our representative, fulfilled the law with all its obligations so that we could be set free. This is the promise of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Ezekiel 36 tells it like this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. This is the end. The beginning is here, we just read. The end is here. And which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. You see, Jesus' perfect fulfillment of the covenant made at Sinai placed an end to the law. We no longer need to obey this covenant, but only what Christ has commanded. Now Christ he confirmed or affirmed most of these Ten Commandments and they reflect the character and nature of God himself. But for instance, the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. We find our rest in Christ alone. The Sabbath is a good principle to obey, but we do not need to obey it in the way that they obeyed it because the fulfillment is in Christ. Our obedience is now to find rest in Christ So what does obedience come from? Well, I just read to you Ezekiel. It comes from a new heart in which God gives to his people one that they desire to obey, which God gives through the power of his spirit. So do you understand what God is doing here? You understand that the gospel brings about obedience for God's people? That he, through the, his salvation and understanding how great God's salvation is, he builds in us a new heart by the power of his spirit so that we can obey. Do we cherish the gospel? Are we reminded of the gospel on a daily basis? God's great salvation through the Passover lamb. And how does your heart reflect your love for God in obedience to his word? 
Maybe, maybe you're completely disobedient in this last week. Maybe you have rejected God. You have set up idols for yourself. You have committed adultery in your heart. You have even murdered and been angry against your friends and family. And maybe you're going, I am completely disobedient from God and I need to repent and I need to come back to the God who saves and I need Jesus today to change my heart to give me a new heart and one that wants to fulfill and obey what he has commanded because God is good and his salvation is good and he knows me and he loves me and he has a plan for me just like he did Israel. You see, the gospel drives desire and desire drives actions. When we place the gospel into our hearts and minds, We allow Christ to change our desires to do what? To make us a holy people. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is our third point this morning, and it's thus. God presents his people as holy. God saves them. He calls them to obey, and then ultimately, he presents his people as holy. He says, you shall be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They serve the king by having access to his holy presence. They come offering spiritual sacrifices to him. Priests rule with the king in his kingdom. Adam was to be a royal priest. Adam was created to work and to keep the garden. The same words used as the priest to serve and guard in the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. And now there is a return For God's people, not only just Moses, but all of God's people to be this kingdom of priests. As God's presence will dwell with his people and now his people will serve him as his representatives serving the Lord and his presence. And they are to guard themselves from outside influences of evil. They are to be a people who are to set, a people who are set apart and holy. They are to be different than the nations. All of these commandments are given to these people to be different than the nations. Peter picks up on this language in the New Testament and he calls the church the people of God, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He's talking to the church. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God saves his people for a purpose. And a reason. He works in them to present them as holy in Christ. And God is accomplishing his will in his creation. 
despite man's unfaithfulness because God is faithful. He will send himself to fulfill the covenant, to make his people a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The best descriptor I have of presenting God's people as holy is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. It says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God presents his church as his bride, as holy, because of what he has done. God has not only fulfilled his covenant through Christ, but he has also made his people holy through the sacrifice of Christ. And when God sees his people, he sees the righteousness of Christ upon his church. God does the work. Amen? It's his work. Man, man, man is unfaithful all throughout the text. And yet God is faithful in Jesus Christ. Let's place our faith and trust in Christ for our salvation. Let us submit ourselves to Christ in obedience to his word and let Christ change our hearts to make us a people who are presented before the Lord God as people who he says, well done, faithful, and good servant. Not because you were faithful, but because Christ is in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have set apart a people for your own possession, a people for your glory. In the Exodus, we see, Father, that you are doing a great, great work. We see the failures of, of the people here. We recognize our failures and our need for Jesus. Lord, help us to be a people who keep our salvation in the forefront of our minds that we don't obey because of obligation but we obey because of our desire to obey because of this great God who saves Father you are working in ways that we cannot see you are calling people to yourself let us be a people who serve you, who love you, who guard your word and your truth for the next generation. Help us to be a church that 
reflects your glory. Father, if there are wickedness and sin among us, we pray that you would deal with that, that you would expose it, and that you would allow us to be a people who reflect your name and your character among our community right here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now's the time.